and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I am Brian Levinson. I can't explain to you how excited I am for today's guests. That's right, guests with a S on the end. We got two guys uh, in the office today chatting, and one is Kyle Maynard. So Kyle Maynard is a quadruple amputee, uh, yet he has climbed some of the toughest mountains that we have in this world. He is in the Wrestling Hall of Fame, and he's also fought in an MMA fight. Uh, You may have heard of Kyle. He's been on Larry King. He's been on Oprah. Uh, But more than any of that, what makes Kyle so special is his mind. Uh, He is just an extremely thoughtful person. You'll get a sense from our conversation today how much he thinks about the mental side of performance and how he uses his mind to help his body do things that others think are impossible to do. So Kyle is someone who is just incredible, and everyone that he interacts with, uh, he inspires. Uh, In some ways, he's a hero, and in some ways, he's just a normal person that is trying to live his life to the fullest. On the other side of me is Jeff Gum. Uh, Jeff Gum is also a hero, but for completely different reasons. So uh, Jeff served as a Navy SEAL and was a sniper with the SEALs and also has trained a number of SEALs as well. So Jeff is one of the most physically well put together humans that you'll see, um, and he has trained his body for war. And so Jeff has amazing experiences and also went through amazing challenges through Bud's training when he was trying to achieve his dream of becoming a SEAL. So both of these guys have amazing juxtapositions, uh, but you'll find out pretty quickly that they see the world in a pretty similar way. And they both are inspired by pushing on the edges of what is possible, and they don't like to make excuses. So when you think of toughness, at least when I think of toughness, These two guys uh, represent that, they embody that, but for all kinds of different reasons. Um, But what's amazing about this conversation is you will see just how intelligent these two guys are and how thoughtful they are about the ways in which they are intentionally setting their mind when they're going through really hard things. And both of these guys seem to like to go through really hard things, but you'll tell right off the bat, they also have a sense of humor. So they really have a joy for life that is uh, inspiring, but it's also contagious. When you're around both these guys, you smile, you laugh, you think, and 
That is what this podcast is going to do for you. So I know you're going to love this podcast. And when you do, please share it. Share it on Facebook. Share it on Twitter. We all have a responsibility to share these messages with as many people as possible because it really does help you think about how you're seeing the world. Uh, But without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you both Kyle Maynard and Jeff Gum. Kyle, Jeff, excited to have you guys. I'm just going to paint the picture for our guests because they can't see you and it's uh, it's not video. Uh, <laughs> Jeff is wearing a shirt that says mindset is everything. Uh, and for those that don't know Jeff, and maybe we'll include a picture or something like that. Uh, Jeff is a big, strong <laughs> dude. Um, you know, we were in Israel together and I was... I felt very comfortable and uh, safe with Jeff by my side. Uh, and Kyle is, is a smaller dude, but he's wearing a shirt, and I don't know what your shirt says. Molem Leiby. It says, come and take them. It's what King Leonidas <clears throat> said to King Xerxes when he said, lay down your arms. These were actually shirts that my friend Mitch Aguiar has made, who's a Navy SEAL and MMA fighter. He's trying to instill people that mindset is everything so he gave us a couple of these shirts and we're happy to rock them love it so So, i mean i couldn't think of better clothing for you guys to wear um for this conversation because we're gonna get into thanks mitch yeah (laughs) for the wardrobe (laughs) shout out to mitch um but jeff i want to start with you so so jeff i mean we were literally talking before we turned on the mics and you know i was asking you what intentional things you did to set your mind as a seal and I want you to just share with the world what sort of things you would do to set your mind either in buds training or in combat or wherever it might be uh, just give us a peek into what intentional things you did to set your mind all right so you asked me earlier what I did to set my mind and I really thought back to some of the most it was like a crossroads in in my life uh, am I gonna make it through this training or am I gonna wash out like 90% of the people in my class did? So paint that picture for us a little more on, on SEALs. Cause you know, we watch the movies, we learn about it, but some people are listening to this that might not know anything. So you said like 90%, like is that a, is that a, a strong number? Is it 90% of, of SEALs don't make it? And that was the case in my class and in a lot of classes. And so for example, we started my training with 253 people, we finished, with 26. Jeez. And uh, I mean, just to become part of that 253, there is a decent screening process just there. So. And, and give us an idea of who those people were. You don't have to name them, but what types of people were part of that 253? If you could give us some examples of where they're coming from, um, what their background was, because um, I'm sure there are a lot of people that didn't make it, that if we look at their resumes, their, their life resumes, they're probably some of the most impressive resumes, I would imagine. Absolutely. It's a lot of college athletes, even Olympic athletes come through. Um, like college, I'd say almost 50% of SEALs have college degrees, just because being a little bit older and having accomplished something already definitely sets you on a path to making it through training. Awesome. And then back to the intention. So you go through this rigorous training, you make it out. What were some of the tools or techniques that you would use to help you with the training? And, and I've got Kyle to my left and we'll get to Kyle soon, but I'm just, I want to dive right into it with you and uh, give us an idea of some of the tools and techniques that, that you would use. 
The thing with the training, it's set up to really make sure you don't have a weakness. So it might be running with boats on your head one second. It might be laying in the surf zone, just freezing, being surf tortured for an hour at a time the next. After that, you might go to the pool and you have to tie knots at 15 feet underwater or swim around the pool with your hands and feet tied together. When you're saying make sure we don't have a weakness, mentally, physically, emotionally, how, how did they think about that? Because we have to, like SEAL is sea, air, land. So we have to be able to be successful in any environment, whether not just sea, air, land, but cold weather, mountains, skydiving out of planes, remaining, remaining calm through all these situations. So they expose us to everything. And, and, and so to get through putting a boat on your head or, or being underwater, what were some of the things you would do specifically to intentionally set your mind to handle that? So leading up, going to the pool, we had a mentor that spoke to us and would show us some different techniques. And he talked about this four for four for four breathing. And you breathe, you breathe in for four seconds and then you would breathe out for four seconds and you would do that for four minutes and it would really calm you and get you ready and you'd be able to focus on, you'd be able to visualize what the task was that you were gonna do. Whether it was gonna be knot tying, you could be going through exactly how you're gonna tie the knots. Whether it was a 50 meter underwater swim, you could be going through exactly how your stroke is gonna be. And also I would set my mind that I would not come up, because if you come up for air before you're done with that, with that 50 meter underwater swim, or before you get the thumbs up after you tie the different knots underwater, or if you as your hands and feet are tied together behind your back while you're swimming, if you come up, then you fail that evolution. But I looked at it coming up, it's, you're basically quitting that evolution at that time. And part of the SEAL creed is I will never quit. So I just always set my mind that no matter what, I am not coming up for air until I complete that task. So this is a good time to transition over to Kyle. Uh, so Kyle, a lot of athletes think that they need to pump themselves up and get themselves animated, especially in sports like football or wrestling, which is a sport I know you're familiar with, or MMA. Um, but Jeff sort of is talking about breathing, and breathing often calms us down. Um, I'm curious to get your perspective as a wrestler, as someone who fought in an MMA fight, as someone who's cl a climber or public speaker. There's all these different areas where you have to set your mind to perform. Do you think about pumping yourself up? Do you think about calming yourself down? And are there similarities between, say, public speaking and a wrestling match? Yeah, I would say so for <clears throat> it'd be a two-part answer. I think it's like I know what I, it's good for me, but I don't necessarily know what's good for someone else. And mm -hmm. I think it's something that someone else to go and experiment themselves. You know, if you think about a number line from like 1 to 10, you have a certain sort of like level that you're going to perform best at. Right. And it's different, you know, energy level, so to speak, or level of like hype and level of like excitement. If I go into a speech and I'm at a three, I'm going to put everybody to sleep. Sure. If I go into a speech and I'm at a 10, nobody's going to understand what the heck I'm saying because I'm just going to be like way too intense, way too pumped up and just, you know, screaming or yelling. Like, it's not going to make sense. So, you know, my optimal speech, I would say, is like a 7.5, 7.5 to an eight. 
And that's where that target that I sort of like, you know, I'll, I'll visualize it and I'll like, I'll get myself in that physical state by doing whatever I need to do backstage squats or like push ups or something like that, like physically getting the blood pumping, you know, and I know that just the excitement of being in front of the crowd is going to go and, and deliver. And incidentally, I would say in a wrestling match, it's, it's kind of a comparable, you know, would be a comparable level of, you know, uh, maybe like right at it about an eight. I'm not too overexcited but I'm able to like kind of like slow and you know use my mind. You know that 7.5 is 7.5 to an eight is kind of my, my my personal sweet spot on that number line. How about hiking? That's totally different. You know that is, you know, uh, you, like most of the hike is going to be at like a two, and then you have moments of sheer terror. You know, with a watermelon-sized boulder that shoots past my head, or I'll sh- slip on a sheet of ice at 22,000 feet, and then like, you know, now I've like got to have like a total gut check. And in those moments too, I'll revert to a, a mantra. Um, you know, the first seal that I became friends with was a guy named Richard Mackwitz and he had a mantra that was, um, not dead, can't quit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that even years before I met Jeff and became one of my like, closest friends, like that mantra helped me up Mount Kilimanjaro, helped me on Mount Aconcagua. And in those moments of, you know, that kind of terror, like I said, when it comes in, it's like, you know, I can like focus my mind on that like, look, you're not dead. Keep moving. You know, can't quit. You know, not dead. Can't quit. NDCQ, NDCQ. Uh, Jeff, if you were going to use that one to 10 model, uh, when you're going through the stuff with the seals, where would you have been? So it all, all depends. If I'm going through a kill house, I'll probably fluctuate. What's a kill house? A kill house is, let's say we're doing close quarters combat, moving through a house where we have people that are popping out. They're going to be shooting at us and we got to go through, shoot back at them, uh, prepares us for training. A dangerous situation. Well, this is training to get ready to go overseas and, you know, engage with terrorists and whether it's Al-Qaeda or ISIS or whoever. So I'd say you got to be ready to go back and forth between a five and a 10. You might be going through, if you're at a 10 the whole time, you're not going to be able to you know, you move into a room and it's a, it's a grandma or a kid, you don't want to be at a 10 and just smash them. You have to be at a 5, be able to move them out of the way safely, get them to the back, and then continue moving through. Then you have, you might have someone jump out through a false wall or whatever, boom, now you're at a 10. Now they might have gotten a jump on your gun, now you're fighting them in a hand-to-hand combat scenario. You might smash them, get them away, pull out your secondary, and shoot them. Now, all of a sudden, you have to bring it back down because now you're moving back through the house, and now it might be the next grandma or a kid or whatever. But if you're just at a 10, you're not going to be ready to you're not going to be ready to move that kid out of the way safely. Yeah, the decision making might go down as the arousal moves up. Uh, there's something called the inverted U theory, uh, which suggests that if if we're on a line from one to 10, that we should have an inverted U. And it suggests that the optimal level is somewhere at like a five. Mm. Um, and so it's, it, it, they use the word optimal level of arousal. They use the word arousal, but you could change out arousal for adrenaline or energy or excitement or whatever word you want to use. Um, but what I do with my clients all the time is say that you can shift depending on what you need. But it's important to know where do I want to be from an energy standpoint when I'm performing. So when I'm doing a public pre- a speech, yeah, I need to bring the energy up or else people are going to be falling asleep. But for other tasks like hitting a golf ball, I might need it to be like at a two or a three. And so I think we make this 
mistake all the time by saying you should be excited and you should be energetic and like Ray Lewis, like any dogs in the house. Like, but the reality is a lot of things that we do in life, actually, when we are calm, we can make decisions better and be clear. And also anger plays a role here too, because as anger increases and anger is usually reactive um, our decision-making tends to go down. So learning how to deal with the emotions, but having um, a set mind or a set concept of where do I want to be on that scale is so important. I think you both brought up, it depends on A, the person, and B, the situation. Um, so a lot of times in sports, people say, oh, he's even keel, like that's great. I'm like, well, maybe, it just depends on who the person is and what, what works for them. So a thought that came up when you said that about like it, like optimal level being a five, right, too, I think it, it actually makes sense. And what, I, what, what sort of came to mind for me was I've given a thousand speeches, Yeah. okay? So given a thousand speeches, probably been in close to a thousand wrestling or jiu-jitsu matches, at least something like that, you know, like a lot. So there's a lot of time that's there, like under, you know, under that environment. Um, I think the interesting thing is if I were giving like my first 50 speeches, I would, if I had aimed at a five, I would have ended up at an eight. Mm. So, you know, it's one of those things where when I say a 7.5, that's because it's like, that's where I know I can put myself at an actual 7.5. But if I go and aim, if I'm new to this and it's something that, you know, I don't have a lot of experience under, then if I aim at a five, then I'll end up at a 7.5 or an eight or something like that. Love it. And also being aware of where you are. So like the example of a thermostat versus a thermometer, right? A thermostat, you set the temperature and it doesn't really fluctuate too much. A thermometer, the environment's going to dictate what what the temperature is. And so we talk about setting the mind and being a thermostat, right? And even if you think it's at a 70 degree, you know, you know, maybe the environment will change it a little bit. Um, But like, let's, let's try to set the mind. So I think that's such a fascinating concept that both of you um, can relate to. Uh, I want to go over to Kyle. And I want to get your thoughts on the word toughness. Um, and, And Jeff, you're on deck because I'm going to come to you with it as well. How do you define toughness? How do you think about toughness? Um, In what context? I'm going to leave it vague and broad for you to, to, to riff on what do you think of that word? When you hear tough, where do you go? The initial thoughts would be, I think, a lot of it comes through with language. And, you know, someone that I would relate to as a tough person might, nece- you know, necessarily be not someone that like is just like physically tough like you go and look at and go and see but like someone that can actually like endure difficult circumstances without complaining you know without like verbalizing like a ton of like just like ah this sucks and like just like the whining the complaining like that to me is like ugh that it just you know the reason I asked you to start with is because we walked up a mountain together right and during that experience I don't remember you complaining once even though you told me you couldn't feel your feet at one point, yeah. your elbows were chafing like crazy, and it was very rocky. And, and I was difficult. even pissed at myself had, for saying that. <laughs> he had taken socks and had two pairs of socks on and then duct taped his feet so he had something hard so that the rocks weren't going through his feet. Because normally when he climbs, when he climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and when he climbed Mount Aquantagua, he had carbon fiber uh, like shoes basically that had been taken a mold and he had a couple pairs of socks on through that so it's like some nice pat he has vibrant bottoms on that and he it's awesome for him to climb in here he just took bath towels 
and we wrapped them around his arms and duct taped them because we had been traveling for six weeks before we even got to Israel. So Jeff, you said something to me about Kyle, and I know you guys are close, but I don't know if you share this type of intimate conversations with each Ooh, other. I'm intrigued. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this could go in a million directions in Kyle's mind. But you said to me, you're like, he's one of the toughest dudes I've ever met. And you've been around guys. When we think of toughness, uh, I think we think of SEALs. We think of military. Um, walk me through why you think Kyle is one of the toughest guys you know, and then give us your definition of what do you think about the word toughness? Well, I, th- I think it's the way people can deal with adversity and deal with things positively when everything goes wrong. Someone can train forever for a certain type of thing and be excellent at it. But as soon as, you know, like they said, the philosopher Mike Tyson said, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the head. Deep philosopher. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and uh, Kyle's had, you know, he, when even when he climbed Kilimanjaro, it was first time using these carbon fiber shoes to go up a mountain and his arms swelled up bigger than they could even fit in there so all of a sudden he's just got in the worst pain of his life and he's less than halfway up the mountain and the way he dealt with it he made a new mindset he found a new why to get up there and just to give people too a little bit of visual context since we're talking about this over a podcast and people are like, what the heck are they even saying right now? Why is this guy duct taping his feet? <laughs> like, uh, so basically my arms end right at the elbows and my legs end at the knees. And so I was born with it. I've never really um, known any other way. I've, and it's also too not something I don't really endure physical pain on like a daily basis. And like, because I was born this way, I don't really have that many adaptations. Use kind of normal spoon, fork, news, normal iPhone, type 50, 60 words a minute, drive a fairly minimally adapted vehicle. There's this kind of, it, to me, it's just kind of like normal. But certain things like climbing a mountain would present different challenges. So to your point, especially with the gear, that's like a Well, the, you, you, the reason I think it's so important that you say that is on our on our way over there, we were on the bus together and everyone else was sleeping because it was like 3.30, 4 a.m., um, but you started asking me, Brian, what are some things that you work on with athletes to get them mentally ready? And, you know, I thought, oh, you're just having conversations with like visualize, breathing, self-talk, like just the basic tools. And I didn't realize until afterwards that you were actually starting that process of getting ready, setting your mind yeah. to go climb this knowing mountain. it's going to suck. <laughs> right? Like knowing it's going to suck. And I hadn't even thought about it because I'm like, yeah, we're just going to walk up this mountain. Um, I, you know, I didn't really think about it. Walk me through that morning, what you're doing to set your mind uh, for something that you know is going to be painful. And this was a Masada fortress, like, I don't even know, 2,000, 2,500 feet up in the Judean desert, like over 100 degrees once the sun came up. Yeah. Just crawling on the ground and for duct tape and socks. <laughs> you know, we... I, like Jeff was saying, didn't have the climbing gear, so I know that, like, I've done climbs with bath towels duct taped on my arms and, you know, like, on my feet. Like, it's, I know it's going to be painful. I know it's going to be, right? So it can kind of come into it expecting it. It's like the same thing with, I think, a lot of the guys going through buds, right? Like, before Hell Week starts, like, you're sitting there, you're watching movies, right? You're, like, sort of, you know, and a lot of guys build something in their head to be, you know, in, our, in my head, too, like, it can be way worse than it is. But part of what... Guys I, go and quit yeah. before it even starts because <laughs> they can't handle it mentally. They're just, like, cracking under, the, like, that, that pressure. It's like, you know, I, part of what, what I try to do is, like, try to pick, like, um, 
sort of like a uh, like with uh, Masada. I think they said I heard our tour guide say in the way there. He's like, yeah, there were like seven hundred and forty steps or something like that. And so in my head, I'm like, oh, cool. Like, I'll just count the steps, and then like I'll do it for like ten or twenty steps. I'll count it, and then I'll lose count. And I'm like, oh, I'll just start over and start counting again from like one or two. You know, and then I'm like, oh, I'm probably like two or three hundred steps in. Like, but that's just like that mental game that I try to go and play, or just try to turn it into like you know, those like, you know, sort of, you know, the, I think micro goals is kind of like more of like the, you know, one of the words to describe it. But really to me, it's just like anything I can do to turn it into sort of a game to make it more fun and like more entertaining where I'm not like thinking of, oh, I've got however much more to deal with. It's like I'm dealing with this right now. Yeah. You know, Jeff, you brought up the idea of toughness being about recovery, right? And being about uh, getting back after you might struggle. So I think mental toughness is all about recovery. It's all about, all right, my mind wandered or physically I went somewhere. I think toughness... Lasso it back in. Yeah, to bring it back. I call it snap recovery. Like, can you recover as quickly as you snap your fingers? Like, can you snap recover? So I think mental toughness is about recovery. But I think we often use mental toughness and mindset together when they're actually separate. Because for me, mindset is what am I doing to set my mind? So it should actually be called set mind. Uh, what am I doing to set my mind for the performance? I know this is going to suck. I know this is going to be difficult. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have some joy with it. I'm going to smile. Maybe I'm going to talk to people. Maybe I'm going to talk to myself. I'm going to listen to music. Those are intentional things to set my mind for the environment. Mental toughness is, oh crap, now I'm in it. How am I going to recover? And I think we, we, we put them together, but abs- I actually think they're two separate skills. And I think a person can be mentally tough, but they could be bad about setting their mind. A person can have a good mindset, but maybe not be good once it they starts. get in it and have the mental toughness. So I think separating those two uh, is helpful. Um, so as you guys are climbing the mountain, you know, it's interesting because Kyle just said, yeah, I was pissed that I even complained about the towel thing. But you have this sort of no complaint, no excuses, like I'm going to get to the top of the mountain. But I've got to tell you, as someone observing it, I'm thinking halfway through, like, dude, is he really going to do this? So to paint this picture a little bit more for everybody else, uh, the rest of our group got up this mountain in 45 minutes. Uh, They got to the top and, you know, watched the sunrise from up there. I would say it took us, what, maybe two and a half hours? Um, Almost three, maybe? We might have been only a quarter of the way up by the time the sun came, which makes the climbing even more challenging because now it's hot. Sweat. He's soaked with sweat. Uh, I mean, I don't normally sweat, so. (laughs) (laughs) So, But but like, what goes through your mind, and and Jeff, you're on deck here as well, which is like, what goes through your mind um, when there's doubt? When there's like a thought of like, "Eh, do I really want to keep going? Or am I really going to make this happen? And, uh, you know, I would assume, Jeff, you go through the same stuff going through Buds, which is like, you say that there's no quit, but there's always an option to quit. Like you, you had, you maybe know, maybe for everyone else. <laughs> maybe for, but you had two hundred other people that chose to quit. Uh, so they would have had to drag his corpse. Out yeah. Of so, but 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 yeah, Jeff, you go first. Like, what is it that gets you to that place that just says, "F it, I'm I'm keeping it going." So I had this amazing master chief. Uh, his name is Master Chief William Guild, and. He spoke about stoicism and philosophy and really instilled a lot of like mindset into, into us going into this training. And he spoke about monkey mind. And monkey mind was 
you have all these thoughts that pop into your mind at any random time. You can be walking down the street and have like a terrible thought pop in your mind and immediately you think, what the heck was that? Get out of my mind, like that was terrible. And that's who you really are. You're not that first thought, you're that second thought, you're that third thought, you're that thought about the thought. So immediately I took that and said, anytime, even doing easy things where they'd be like, oh, drop down, do push-ups or go jump in a surf zone, all right, get back here. Things that were easy compared to the more challenging things that we do. Sometimes I'd think, that's stupid, I don't wanna do that, I wanna quit. But immediately I'd think, shut up, like this is the easy thing you're doing, like, and, and I never even took it serious if I ever had that thought. And most of the time when I was doing the harder, more challenging things, you're just so focused on completing the task and doing it well and standing out to the instructors in, in a good way that it wouldn't even pop in your mind then. When you're focused on competing and doing well and winning the races or at least coming in the top part of the class, then you have a whole different mindset than the people that are just trying to survive. At the, if you're trying to survive, you're, you don't you're have done. a good chance of surviving. Yeah. <laughs> you're not going to survive. You're talking about you, you need to thrive. Exactly. So that word, what does that word mean to you when you hear it, Kyle? When you hear the word thrive, what does that elicit for you? Uh, I mean, again, I would say it, 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 coming back to like what, like what type of context are we talking about? Like a business thing, a speech thing, a you know, mountain or whatever. I mean, I guess it's going to depend on what, you know, where I'm at, what I'm doing. The reason I ask you is because you could have just gone through your life surviving. Um, okay, like but a bigger life kind of. Yeah, like I'm talking about more, more big, like, more macro in the sense of like, it would have been very easy for you to go through your life surviving. And I look at you and I think like, this dude's a thriver. Like survival's not good enough for you. Um, like, like I'm serious. And I think there are three types of people in this world. There are victims or survivors or thrivers. Victims say, why me? Survivors say it is what it is. And thrivers say, watch this. And I think you're a freaking show off. Like you, <laughs> you are a show off, man. Like you oh, love you. showing people like, watch this. And, yeah. and I think that is, that is, that is something that we can all learn from because we all go through adversity in our life and some choose to be a victim. And by the way, being a victim is okay too. Like there's a time to be a victim and say like, why me? Like this sucks. This happened to me. But you just can't stay there. You right. need to shift. And maybe it's to survivor, right? Acceptance. It is what it is. But eventually the goal for all of us should be to thrive. And I look at you and I'm like, dude, this guy is a thriver. Um, so I don't know if you have any other thoughts. I'm fired up. Yeah. yeah like <laughs> no, it's cool. And this is actually the cool thing of like us doing this together in person. I mean, with like, you know, with our friendship me, between me and Jeff, like he just wrote down like a, like one of my like two like quotes. That's like the biggest, you know, guide in my, in my life. And like, you know, just like, that's really cool. Popped in, you know, to his head and then like shared it now. But the quote is Emerson said, do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. Mm. And that, that to me is thriving is like where I am going into the unknown and I'm doing, you know, doing something that sort of really hasn't been done before and stretching into like new territory. So therefore I can go and learn and grow and create that path and that trail and turn around and help someone else, you know, reach like the same place where ultimately they take it to wherever you got to and they take it even further. That's really like the idea of that, that thriving it's follow, you know, Joseph Campbell said, follow your bliss. Like that's where it's not like bliss is not just like, Oh, I want to be 
sort of happy. Bliss is like, no, like the ultimate, like sort of like what gives you like that sheer joy, those moments where you're most alive, like feel that, aim for that. And maybe sometimes you're not going to go and quite reach that, but like you'll get, you'll get close. Jeff, you said something, you said, uh, I wanted to stand out. Um, and that stood out to me when you were telling that story, because I think we think of military as being fitting in and you mentioned, no, I wanted to stand out. Like I wanted to finish first. Like I was competing. How do you blend standing out while still fitting in? And I'll say too, at, at one point I had become the weakest person. I had gotten really sick. I couldn't even... So you're standing out for the wrong reasons. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was terrible. It was almost the most depressing point of my life. My first class I was in, I had gotten viral gastroenteritis Friday before Hell Week. I don't know what that is, but it doesn't sound good. I was just puking nonstop, so I <coughs> could couldn't eat food for a day before before uh, or like Friday before Hell Week. I could barely take fluids. They were giving me IVs. Uh, they missed my vein three times trying to get the IV in. Then finally Saturday night before Hell Week, I was able to start eating a little bit, ate a little bit Sunday, but then I started Hell Week and because I was so dehydrated, first day went pretty well, but you don't even get your first nap until Wednesday, which is you only get an hour and a half. Like my, I put out so hard and was dehydrated to begin with, plus you're getting hypothermia along the way. So... Next thing, I get rhabdomyolysis, which no one had even What's that? been diagnosed with before at Bud's. You're throwing a lot of big words my way. What is that? <laughs> so it typically only happens to people that get crushed in car accidents or earthquakes. It's where your muscles break down so much that your blood is overtaken with muscle waste and protein waste and basically becomes toxic. And you Sounds become, like a great thing for a SEAL to get, huh? Especially when you're going through... <laughs> a lot of like them get it, week. but yeah. they hadn't been diagnosed because everybody had quit before it got because diagnosed. everything becomes so physical that your body shuts down and you become the weakest person. And now, people can't take that. I couldn't stand under the boat. I couldn't keep up with everyone when they'd be running. All the instructors are coming after me because they're like sharks in the water when they see blood. And and uh, trying to get you to quit. I knew exactly, but I knew who I was. I knew I belonged there. I knew I was strong. I had never failed one evolution my entire time, in so far, and your body's just just failing. But and it sucked at the time. But what I thought was the worst thing, and then I got performance dropped. I was an hour from Wednesday. I was the last person in my class. Thirty six made it through Hell Week. Of that class, I was the 37th one left. Wait, and wait, wait. So how do you make it? You finish on, fr- you finish yeah, on Friday. Yeah, you're 37th. Just, they, they performance dropped me. I had gotten so weak, and they had, they had uh, written me up for not performing that they dropped me from it. And, and, uh, but I went and spoke to that master chief. I called other SEALs I knew. I went and told the senior chief who was part of the people who had dropped me. He wouldn't take off his uniform. <laughs> so Just persistent, well, I'm not going like home, Other people have to put on like a quitter uniform. Right. And that's the thing that blows my mind is he's like, no, like, even if you tell me I to go put, put that on, on. I put on my dress blues. Yeah. They literally, a, there's a quitter uniform. Or it's I mean, not it's more the thing. normal Navy. <laughs> it's more the normal Navy uniform, but right. it's what you put on. Like nobody it's that's done. in buds wears it. 
if you go to XDiv, you put on, it was called the utilities, and I looked at that as the quitter uniform. So you also go and you ring a bell, and you lay down your helmet that has your name on it, and there's a row of like a hundred helmets with all green of everyone who had quit, and I was, I knew there was no way I was <laughs> ever going to do that. You know, it, it's interesting because you mentioned standing out in a good way, but that's also standing out in a bad way, right? Absolutely. There's a fear of I'm going to stand out, let my people down, let myself down. And that fear of embarrassment or failure or whatever, that was a motivating factor for you? Absolutely. And I was like, if I quit on myself now, what is the rest of my life for? Like, mm. this is something I made the decision that I want more than anything. It's a way I can go and make the world a better place. And Walk me through that decision because let's go back a little bit. Um, look, I, I went, you know, we're all around the same age. So there's this moment in our lives that, that impacted us, which is 9-11. And I think we can all remember that. And, but I didn't, I then went off to college and never would have thought about enlisting. Um, was that a moment that, that greatly impacted you or what led you down this path? And then, you know, there's one thing to go into the military. There's another thing to go want to become a SEAL. Just give us a little uh, nuance into how that all went down. So it actually started when I was 16 and I tore my ACL playing basketball. And I had played four sports up to that point. And all of a sudden I went from lifting and working out every day and playing a, like a different sport to all of a sudden I'm in a brace, not being able to do anything. And I realized whether it was going in, in the business right away or whatever, that I needed the biggest challenge to really fulfill me. Two years later, as I, as I had that in my mind already, 9-11 happened and it just made it even more important why I need to go be a SEAL, go take the fight to the enemy, the people that are coming after my country and my way of life and the freedoms that we, that we have, I want to go take the fight to them. But I also realized getting a college degree, getting a little bit older, getting a little bit stronger would be a big advantage and just help me a lot going into this type of training. But for both of you, you guys go toward hard stuff. Like you both, I think where others would be hesitant or scared. Uh, you guys, I think one of the commonalities that I see in both of you is that you go toward obstacles or you go toward challenges. Kyle, what is it about obstacles that you are drawn to? What is it about a challenge that you're drawn to? Because as I said earlier, you could just be a survivor or you know just sort of go about things a certain way, but at least my experience with you getting to know you is like, no, oh, yeah, I'm gonna go toward that. Uh, is that upbringing? Is that innate? Where does that come from? There's probably there's a lot of factors that, that go into this. I, I you know I think it's beyond the scope of this conversation to go and explore all of those things. I do think that if I look at it as a whole, you know, over the course of my life, and I just got to write a section about this for a book that's coming out next year from a, for a friend. Um, but it's like, and in reflecting on that same question, I started thinking it's like I, I love like moments of suffering. I don't love it when I'm in it, right, necessarily, but I, you know, I go and look back and so many different things in my life, you know, it was like there were intense moments of suffering, but usually on the other side of that, like it just makes like the other, the rewards like so much sweeter, you know, and it's like a big thing. I think we're missing out 
on like a sense of suffering. We're missing out on a big sense of like knowing ourselves. And I, I love people who love suffering. I love the fact that like for him, like he knew the only thing that he wouldn't do was, was quit, right? Like, you know, so many other things were possible, but that was not a possibility. And he was going to suffer through the physical and the mental pain of it being just excruciating. There's two things I would tug on there. Number one, this notion of post-traumatic growth. So um, everyone knows about post-traumatic stress and Jeff, I'm sure you have seen it uh, up close and personal and it's, it, oh, it's awful. Um, but there's also something called post-traumatic growth, which is once yeah. people go through something terrible, there's Martin Seligman. Yeah. About. Like positive psychology yeah. really gets into it. Um, and then the other big thing that I think you hit on, which is pain is the biggest teacher. It's a teacher. Yeah. Nothing expedites learning like pain. Now that's not, it's just, not always just physical pain. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's also like, there's like, there's an element of like, for instance, like one thing for me, a big learning time when I was 11 years old and I got into wrestling, I lost every single match for a year and a half, you know, mm. it sucked. I begged to go and quit. You know, first time I went and put on a pair of socks, it took 45 minutes, you know, I had to go and wait, you begged to go quit. Yeah. To who? To my parents. And what'd they say? They were like, while well, I wrestled all through sixth grade, didn't uh, win a match and I didn't want to do it again. You know, the only goal that I had kept was not to be penned because I viewed penned, being penned in a wrestling match as like the ultimate resignation. I was like, I'm never going to be penned. And I set my mind to that and I was like, it never was penned. But I, that many times that year, I was on like one shoulder pressed down, fighting to go and stay alive, bridging on my back to go and try to keep, you know, another guy from pinning me. So what did mom and dad say to you when you said, I'm begging, I'm begging, please let's stop. Dad tricks me into coming back and wrestling again my second season just because he told me, he's like, look, I know you didn't win a match your first year, but he's like, I want to tell you something. I didn't win a single match my first year either, and I knew he'd become a very successful wrestler later on and like had offers to go to college and all this stuff. And so uh, he was like, very few people win a match their first year in wrestling. I didn't. He's like, uh, but everybody wins a match their second season because you'll find somebody who it's their first season and you'll beat them. And that was, I was like, cool, like if I do this, then I'll beat somebody that year because I'll be a first year kid. And he gave me that suggestion of like, you know, that belief of like, I would find a first year kid. And sure enough, halfway through that year, I still hadn't won, but the first kid I beat was a first year wrestler. And I'd won that match before I ever stepped out there. So, so, all right, there's a commonality in both your stories. There is a fear <laughs> of failure. There's a fear of embarrassment, right? Like that is drawing you in the beginning. I'm not going to get pinned. I'm not going to walk by and see all those helmets and with those other clothes. Like that you're using to survive, right? Like to stay in it, to just not quit. When you're, everything's going wrong. When everything's going wrong, the fear of failure or embarrassment, that drive kept you in it. But then something shifted for you, which was hope. Like, oh wait, now it's not just to not get pinned. Now my dad's planting a seed like, dude, you're going to win a match. And now there's belief. And you talked about, I just had this belief that this is, I can do this. And I know I can do it because I've crushed it in all these other times. So at some point it's... I knew I just had to be healthy. Yeah. If I can just, if I can just be healthy, if I can just face somebody who has it. Doesn't know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. yeah like, it's, it's the same though, right? So... This is one of the reasons why I think when people we tell people don't be afraid to fail, we're doing them a disservice because fear of failure can help us get into the arena. Right. It can help us stay in the arena. Stay in the arena. And by the way, it can help us on both sides of the mountain, right? Yeah. So it can also help us once we get to the top of the mountain to say, Oh, I'm gonna stay up here because I don't wanna go back down. Yeah, and the humility too of like realizing that like there's always like, you know, there's you get to the top of the mountain, you're like, Whoa, there's higher mountains, you know? And I mean metaphorically, right? Like For sure. For sure. And that post-traumatic growth, 
So if I had just gone through and not been sick and been the strong athlete that I am without having to deal with that different adversity, it's still hard. The training is still really hard. You still got surf torture. You still got boats. You still got log PT. But it wouldn't have challenged me to my core the same way. So everything going wrong, which I thought was terrible at the time, and I was even like, why the heck am I the one that's sick right now when all these guys are healthy and going through this? Ended up being the best thing that ever happened because now I knew even when everything goes wrong, you just pivot, you keep going, and it's going to come out better. It's going to be a gift in the end. Is that optimism? I think part of it, absolutely. Is this notion of it's going to be better. Like, this is going to work out. Have you thought of yourself in that in that way that you're an optimist? I I, I definitely am, uh, but Kyle, I'm, Kyle, you think of yourself that way? Yeah, and I think now I think I mean I try to more a pragmatist. Like I, I want to you know look at things. You know, it's you get to a certain level in life or a certain place in life, right? You sort of like get past a lot of this stuff we're talking about was when we were a lot younger. And I was 23. Yeah, I was 11 when you talked about that wrestling story, you know. Even, you know, so give you a, for instance, like a more recent thing. Mount Aconcagua, you know, was the biggest mountain I climbed. It was on the mountain for 17 days. It's nearly 23,000 feet. So, you know, four nights, I think we spent above the altitude of the summit of Kilimanjaro. Like, you know, it was intense. Like, I think that for every thousand people that summit Aconcagua, like, there's like seven deaths on mm -hmm. average. So, you know, you take a big risk by being there, like weather and all this stuff. And, you know, I needed that kind of for my own self-awakener. I was going through kind of a rougher time, you know, just like, you know, really asking bigger questions about what is my life about, you know, all this stuff, you know, I lost, uh, my grandma was like everything to me, you know, she battled cancer and I'm like, I'm wasting so much time just doing stuff that I don't want to do. And, you know, Aconcagua, I was like, I knew that having like a goal like that, a challenge would be you know, would, would help wake me up. I'm, you know, I spent two months like sleeping in an altitude tent to go and prepare for it. Like finally get there. But also too, to your point of like how the fear of failure is helpful. I tried to actually kind of skirt that like fear of failure by like, being like, you know what? Like we posted on Facebook that we're going and stuff like that. And I've got like a semi-decent Facebook following, but like we didn't really do any type of major PR push. Like, you know, we're going to go and do this. I didn't really put myself in the line that way until we got there. And all of a sudden the Argentinian government in Argentina where the mountain is, they go in like, they find out that we're there and they were like, we want to make you the first honorary group of people with disabilities on this climb. Wow. And saying like, you know, you know, a meet with like the minister of like uh, tourism that was down there, you know, and like all this stuff. And, you know, he's like, hope. yeah. Here comes the hope piece, right? Here comes the, you know, I well, now also the like, oh it crap. Bigger than just yeah. Him. yeah, it's bigger than me. The oh crap. What if I don't, don't make it? Up. You know, or even the worse, oh crap, what if I actually die? Yeah. You know, now then what are people going to say? Back the <laughs> no, I've screwed it up for everybody. <laughs> Huge responsibility, yeah. right? Huge. So mag massive, massive. And it was like, you know, there's just crazy. These fortuitous moments that happen, but like literally while we're on the way to go and like meet with, um, the minister of, you know, of tourism and his staff and stuff like that. Like we're walking there from the hotel and there's this guy standing there in a prosthetic and he's around my age and he's panhandling he looks at me and I look back at him. We just make eye contact for several seconds. And he says, maestro, as we're passing, which means like teacher in Spanish. Mm -hmm. 
and I just started a ball. What's crying. that doing for you right now? Look at you. Yeah, no, yeah. I was like really like crazy. You're getting chills, chills right now. That. I mean, it was just like I was crying in that moment, and I was like, you know, the scariest moment of my life was on that mountain. Only four days in of seventeen, where the night I went to bed, I couldn't get my resting heart rate below like one thirty-five, and I thought I had like I thought I had rhabdo at that point. I thought like I was pushed it way too hard in the altitude. And like, I'm like, if I go to sleep right now, I might not wake up. And that was like a really psychologically rough thing. Also tied to the fact that like, if I go and screw this up, then you know, I am going to go and screw it up for everybody there too. Mm. There's, there's just so much to unpack there. But the thing that I went to in my head was when we climbed this mountain in Israel, at the end of it, um, you get up to the mountain and I actually have this on video where... The tour guide that we were with, the Israeli, a guy from the mountain that works at the mountain comes up to the Israeli and, and starts yelling at him. And I am just listening to him yell at him. And I asked our tour guide, I said, what was he saying? And he said to me, he said, I shouldn't have let him do that. That was irresponsible of me. Like, what's wrong with you? And to me, it's such a massive lesson for us to learn it's like the lesson behind the lesson mm. or the what the maestro can right. teach us right is there are people like the people in argentina who are saying you can be an inspiration for all these other people and we want you to do this but then there are going to be all these other people in this world that are going to say nope you shouldn't be doing this um and and Jeb, if you have any other thoughts, because you guys have traveled the world together, so I'm sure you see people that are see Kyle and think of him as a maestro, and then you have probably others that see him as somebody who is um, irresponsible. Or they tell him he can't get on the plane by himself; he needs help. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you have so many stories, right? Like, so that push pull for me is fascinating. Where there will be people in this world that look at you and say maestro. And I'm inspired. I mean, we're climbing this mountain. One person after the next is stopping you, saying you're an inspiration, you're a hero, taking pictures with you. Um, and we'll, we'll get into this. They are in awe of you. And, and Jeff, I think your story also can inspire people. And they're in awe of what you were able to uh, overcome to become a SEAL and then the work that you do to serve our country. Like, those are awe-inspiring things. But then there are other people that probably will look at you and say, well, you were fighting in a war that, you shouldn't be fighting it, right? There are going to be people that look at you and say, well, you shouldn't be climbing that mountain because it's irresponsible. So I would love for you guys to riff on the idea of like people in awe and then people who are in whatever the opposite of that is. So we can riff on it. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, it's just how we see the world, right? It's how different people interpret the world. Totally. I mean, I'd say, I'd say one thing that uh, a lion doesn't concern himself with the opinion of sheep, so. But the reality that. is, is that there are all kinds of different people that you interact with. There are plenty of sheep, there are lions, and then there's everything in between. Absolutely, and yeah, I can I can try to influence people that that uh, are that are worth influencing, but there's a lot that aren't, and I'm not going to get upset about it if someone's like, "Oh, you shouldn't be there." Well. Some of these people would go and cut your head off if they had half a second, so let me, <laughs> you're welcome. Let me challenge you a little bit on this. So I agree with you. Last week I was at a conference and they talked about 
this guy who was giving a, a presentation said he was, he was a coach and he was really frustrated with some of his athletes. So he goes home and he talks to his dad and he says to his dad, you know, you can't lead a horse to water that doesn't want to go, right? So a, a metaphor for you can't force anybody to see the world how you want to see it or take them where they want to go if they don't want to go. And his dad looked at him straight in the eye and said, but you can make them thirsty. And I think that's such a cool way to look at it. And I have used that, by the way, like I'm a coach. So I've had many clients who I'm like, man, I just, there's nothing I can do. Like they don't want to go. Uh, there's nothing I can do to help this person. But I think we're all in the business of making others thirsty. And so when they don't want to go, I think what you both do on a regular basis is you make people thirsty. You make them thirsty for awe. And maybe that guy the next time will see something a little differently. But I wonder, like, what can we do to still make people thirsty even though they don't maybe want to go? Well, put it a little bit differently, too. Like, I mean, what's the guy going to do to stop me? Mm. <laughs> Is he going to go and, like, jump on my back and fight me? He'll get stab choked. <laughs> <laughs> and then I choke him unconscious and then I go and climb the mountain. Like, yeah. <laughs> is he going to call the police? Yeah. Is he going to arrest me? He's call gonna, the military? He's going to run down halfway and make you go back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But go back to the original thing. So, so Jeff, your thought is like, you know, what, nothing I can do about that guy. Like, you're going to see it. Kyle, do you see that the same way? And, and I would imagine because you two look differently, right? People are staring at you and you've got people that are staring at you and maybe not sure what to do and that awkwardness of it. Um, but how do you think about that? Do you think like uh, about the person of with all on one side and the opposite of all on the other side? Yeah. It's like, you know, when I, the, the time in which I experienced the most intensity of this was I did an MMA fight in 2009 and there were a lot of people on, you know, different commenters, the commenting message boards and things like that, that were like commenting back and forth, arguing people that never met me. Some people, arguing massively on my behalf and like being like there to like defend me saying that I should have the right to go and do it and I'm capable and you know you know trained in jiu-jitsu for a long time like all that wrestling stuff. hall of fame yeah I like had multiple a, state champions you know physically it was like pretty capable I had like you know like when I lift weights I'll strap chains my arms did a 420 pound butterfly press like you know there's I don't know a lot of reasons why I should be able to go in there to compete but there's a lot of people that said like Kyle's you know, like, he's going to be killed, he's going to damage the sport of MMA if he does this, he's going to be, like, you know, televised death, and, like, MMA... Do you empathize with those people at all? Do you empathize with them? Yeah, well, I can... It's not so much that I empathize. I actually don't believe in empathy. I think that empathy is actually, like, counterproductive to people, because Mm. empathy is something that... uh, I used to be a big fan of empathy, but I think empathy actually has, like, negative consequences a lot of time for people. Tell me more about that. I'm fascinated by it. Well, because, like, if I empathize with you, then effectively I'm, I'm allowing, like, your story and circumstances to, you know, like, be like, oh, okay, that gives me that, that like, you know, softer... Promote the victim mindset. Promote more of the victim mindset. It's not that I don't understand your circumstances, but it's like I'm not going to go and buy into the fact that, like, your life sucks because of X, Y, Z, you know? Mm. Mm. It's, it's something that, you know, and I'm not saying that... You know, I don't have, like, a sensitivity and, and understand the fact that, like, you know, many, many people lack the family and, like, the, you know, coaches and the environment that I had. Like, the social capital is, you know, sort of, like, you know, the, the people in my life, right? So that is invaluable. But my point is more, like, if you got a keyboard warrior who's sitting and talking smack in his mom's basement and he's 35 years old and he hates his, you know, life, but he's going to go and ahead and... couldn't last five seconds in a cage with Kyle... 
But he but, doesn't even realize it, though, right? Yeah, so, like, that's, yeah. that's where I, I, I would empathize with that guy. It's more that I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I you used to care. Said, it's the lion and the sheep. The lion doesn't care about the sheep's opinion. Yeah. I care about him to the extent that he's going to go and care about, like, you know, advancing his own life and getting where he wants to go. If he wants to continue to go and sit in his mom's basement, you know, keyboard worrying, then I don't really care. And, you yeah. know, it's one of those things, too, where, give you, for instance, like, classic example. Right after I did an hour interview on Larry King, and the flight attendant had seen the interview and she's like, you can wrestle, you can climb mountains, you can do everything, that's amazing. And then her next question was, do you need help getting to your seat? And I was like, no, I'll jump out of my chair and I'll go and walk. And she proceeds to get in this like five minute argument with me as saying that like your wheelchair can't fit down the aisle of the plane and you're in a wheelchair, you realize you can't walk. I'm like, you watch me wrestling, you watch me climbing mountains and you still have this map, this you know mindset that like, I can't go and get on the plane. So literally what I did was I was like, all right, go ahead and like grab, there's a special aisle chair, wheelchair to get on the plane. And it's like, a, you know, call it the Hannibal Lecter chair because it straps your legs and your waist and your chest and your head in sometimes. And I go and tell her, I was like, go ahead and grab the chair and I'll be right behind you. And she turns around and she's like unbuckling the thing on the chair. I jump out of my chair, I grab my book bag and I just ran past her. Mm. And she was pissed. But it was like one of those <laughs> things where like, I don't really care that you're pissed. <laughs> Yeah, and we, we I think, smoothed it over, but you know, think, all's well that ends well. I think we'll have a, a larger conversation around empathy. I think it's a really interesting conversation, and your perspective, both of your perspectives, are are really intriguing to me. Um, and I, I think it's it's helpful to me. But we'll have a, I think over some drinks tonight, we'll talk more about empathy, uh, and not not because I don't want to have a deeper conversation but i think we could go down a rabbit hole there yeah there's uh, a reason bud's instructors don't have empathy for the students going through training <laughs> yeah yeah well I, yeah i mean so, my selection. thought we could keep going but my thought on it is i think you both have a really good sense of there's nuance to everything and we like to put things into a pretty bow and just say it's this or it's that I think one of the things I've appreciated about both of our both of your stories is that you no, know, sometimes it's good to fear failure. Sometimes it's good to be fearless. Sometimes um, we have to listen, and sometimes we need to talk. And sometimes, sometimes like he said, it's good to be at a five. Sometimes it's good to be at a ten. Sometimes yeah. it's good to be at a two. Yeah, nuance turn, matters. Turn it, on, turn it off. You're about to go to sleep. One. <laughs> right? Nuance. Negative one. Nuance is so valuable, and I think we lose nuance in in a lot of what we do today because. Uh, we just live in a very fast society, and so we lose some of the nuance. Um, I want to end with uh, giving you both an opportunity. First of all, before I do that, getting to know you guys over the last month, and that's all it's been, even though I feel like it's been longer, uh, it's been one of the great joys of my life. And uh, watching your friendship together um, is just, as I said earlier, the word all for me, uh, when I watched you, I, I did a deeper dive into the science of awe and we've had more conversations because I really believe that we should live for awe. And I think you guys both live your lives with awe and with awe in mind. And that can take its shape. And building and relationships with people that bring that out of you. Yeah. So like, I want to thank you for, for bringing awe and all to the forefront in my life. And it's something that I'm more conscientious of now is like, how do I seek awe in my life? And, and by the way, when I go home tonight, I'm going to have awe from my little son running up to me. Like, mm. it doesn't have to be climbing a mountain. Right. Like, it can be. Absolutely. So I look for awe daily. Uh, I look for awe moment to moment. 
in my life. And I really think that crystallized being with the two of you in a foreign country, walking the streets, uh, just experiencing that. So I want to thank you. Uh, and we will have maybe a deeper dive into both of your lives at another time. Cause I think we didn't even get into each of your childhoods and how that's helped shape you. I mean, we talked about you as an 11 year old. I know there's parts of your childhood that have, that have shaped you drastically that don't have to do with you tearing your ACL. So I want to find, I want to share that because I think your stories are just, are, are so, they've changed my life. And I think if they've changed my life, then they can change other people's lives, which is the whole idea of this podcast is to broadcast people like you. So I want to thank you. But I also want to give you both an opportunity to promote whatever it is that you're up to. And I know we're cutting this conversation short, but if we don't, my wife will get mad at me for not being <laughs> home. So let's just call a spade a spade. Um, but Jeff, why don't you start, just promote, how can people find you on social media? I know you've got a business, which we didn't even get into, um, but... Me, me and Kyle together. Yeah, you guys have a business together. So uh, give us that website. Uh, let us know how we can all look good in, in bathing suits and, and in all kinds of gear. Um, and maybe I'll be a model for you one day after I get into better shape. Awesome. So on Instagram, you can find me at Jeff Gum, J-E-F-F-G-U-M. And then Kyle and I launched a swimwear and sunglasses brand. It's called Loudmouth Patriot Swimwear. And then our biggest product right now is the Patriot Shades. It's polarized and floating bamboo sunglasses. They're sustainable, eco-friendly, and they have the stars and stripes laser engraved on the side. And uh, they're just perfect for anything in the water or if you're out in the sun, if you're paddle boarding or surfing, boating, you fall in, they're going to float. You just grab them, throw them right back on, and you're good to go. And you're also promoting patriotism. And uh, yeah, I got out of the Navy June 26th, and that's... A week later, Kyle and I started traveling around the world together. July 7th, we left for Tokyo, then went to Barcelona, Croatia, Mykonos. Then we met you and the, the crew in Israel, went to London, and just been awesome. Kyle's become an incredible photographer and videographer, and so I've been running more like the business aspect of it. Kyle's been doing all the content and everything, and it's just been super fun with that and learning so much. In the same way, going in, that I, you know, was going into SEAL training and had like butterflies and would be just so excited and be taking on this new challenge. Now I'm getting that again because I'm going through that experience curve the same way where I'm attacking something new. And now I'm learning how to do business, learning, learn the Amazon platform, made my own website with Shopify. And uh, you can find my products and check it all out at loudmouthpatriot.com, L-O-U-D-M-O-U-T-H, P-A-T-R-I-O-T dot com Loudmouth Patriot same on Instagram at Loudmouth Patriot and I have a second one at Patriot Shades and uh, you'll get to see all the content that Kyle's been putting together he's just become the most incredible photographer and videographer and uh, got a lot more to go there if you want to go yeah no I think um, it's yeah like you said it's going to be it's been awesome, you know, traveling the world and making that content now is kind of what we're up to. And, um, you know, uh, yeah, I, you know, just like Instagram, you see the, me tagged on a lot of those photos too, but that's like at Kyle Maynard, um, usually the best way, or, you know, if you probably, you know, do a more visual element, just to type my name into YouTube, Kyle Maynard. Um, and yeah, that's uh great, you know, I, I just wanted to like, reciprocate that too. really what we were just talking about Jeff and I in the elevator it's really cool that like a lot of these thoughts and ideas that we talk about you know uh you know even some of the 
things that we've broached and I think we've just barely scratched the surface of what we could go into here, but it's like, it's really cool that like you've dedicated so much of your life to like really understanding these concepts and being able to unpack them in a way that like helps us like unpack them even way deeper. Right. So it's like, you know, for instance, a lot of times when we reflect on stuff, unless we have someone that is, you know, sort of like well-trained and, and educated to go and like, sort of like dive deep into this stuff and ask the right questions. And it's like, a lot of times, you know, you're almost doing things on an unconscious level that you don't even necessarily realize, right? And it's so cool to be able to like pull that out, and it, in you know, the conversations that we've had, you know, have have done that in a huge way. So, like, equally grateful to have you in our life, and and you know, to have met, and you know, I think it's it's awesome the message that you're that you're spreading to your community, and giving I that different the world perspective. Absolutely needs that message like now as much as ever. So, yep. All right, well, thank you guys. I appreciate it. My head just got a little bigger, so we'll end it there, and, and we'll go back to my wife. And, his, and Kyle, <laughs> Kyle has a giant Kyle head. Kyle does have a giant <laughs> Humble, but his head's just huge. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, I was going to say, Thanks, we'll, skull. We'll, go, <laughs> we'll go back home, and my wife will bring me right back, back down to earth. So uh, with that, thank you guys for uh, coming on, and uh, appreciate our friendship, and looking forward to the rest of the evening and, and chatting more with you guys. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. In those moments, too, I'll revert to a, a mantra. Um, you know, the first SEAL that I became friends with was a guy named Richard Mackwitz. And he had a mantra that was, um, not dead, can't quit. You know, it's something that even years before I met Jeff and became one of my like, closest friends, like... That mantra helped me up Mount Kilimanjaro, helped me on Mount Aconcagua. And in those moments of, you know, that kind of terror, like I said, when it comes in, it's like, you know, I can like focus my mind on that. Like, look, you're not dead. Keep moving, you know, can't quit. You know, not dead, can't quit. NDCQ, NDCQ.